These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last episode, we opened with the coincidence that both King Shalmaneser in Asher and Kanashman Enlil II in Babylon took the throne in the same year. We then saw three Babylonian kings come and go over the course of Shalmaneser's reign, each less notable than the last. Then, just by coincidence, Shagarakti Shuriesh and Shalmaneser both pass away in 1233, giving us a new pair of rulers in north and south taking the throne at the same time. I don't think there's any deeper significance to this double coincidence, but it is a little fun fact. In Babylon, the new king is Kashtiliash IV, and continuing the trend of his predecessors, we know almost nothing about him, aside from just one major event, his war with Assyria, which we know of primarily from the Assyrian side. And so we can just summarize his reign by noting that it will last for seven years, see a bit of economic activity in the capitals, and do absolutely nothing to fix the long-term issues Babylon was facing if he was even aware of them. This last may be a bit unfair. He may have attempted one thing with this very issue in mind, but if he had some sort of plan for Babylonian revitalization, it seems to have blown up in his face quite dramatically. Which leaves us with our main player for today's episode, Tukulti Ninurta up in Assyria. Some more modern scholars think that Tukulti Ninurta is the historical basis for the biblical Nimrod, the mighty hunter, but honestly, a good chunk of the Nimrod legend seems to be extra-biblical extrapolation from a handful of probably disconnected verses and a lot of much later mythologizing. So in my opinion, the idea of finding an historical Nimrod is not just difficult, as is typical for many early biblical figures, but actively nonsensical. Anyone interested in finding the so-called historical Nimrod should be paying a good deal more attention to first clearly identifying the biblical figure aside from extra-biblical traditions and realize that there's basically nothing to work from. Does that mean I'm saying that Tukulti Ninurta is definitely not the biblical Nimrod? Of course not. I'm saying that there's so little description that, short of divine revelation or a time machine, it's impossible for anyone to make this determination with the evidence we have on hand. That aside, though, Tukulti Ninurta's ascension to the Assyrian throne was apparently recognized by other nations as something of a bad sign. We don't know why, but apparently as prince, he developed enough of a reputation for something possibly ferocity and competence, or possibly just a really bad attitude, and that the Hittites and Babylonians were worried about him. The Hittites sent him a letter upon his ascension, full of flattery, requesting friendship and cooperation. The Hittites also sent a letter to his top minister, Baba Ahaidna, which basically tells the minister he needs to control this impetuous new king. 
The Hittite king reports that he has heard Tukulti Ninurta has a temper like a bull, and saying that he heard the king giving a speech, saying, I want to accomplish something. If the foreign kings become hostile to me, then they would come against me, and I could make a certain name for myself. Now, sometimes we have to wonder about the accuracy of these letters and writings from other kingdoms, about their international rivals, but given what we know about Tukulti Ninurta and his uh, difficulty getting along with the people around him, this image of a youth eager to prove himself in battle appears to be a quite accurate assessment of his character, at least to a certain extent. The very beginning of Tukulti Ninurta's reign is calm and sees a bit of diplomatic back and forth with the Hittites, possibly even the Babylonians, but this is only a temporary state. Perhaps the new king was consolidating. Perhaps the letter from the Hittites to the Assyrian minister represented some factional split within the court. But whatever was going on, Tukulti Ninurta cut through it pretty quick and raised an army to start conquering in the Assyrian northwest. Now, the Assyrian Northwest by this point is actually the Hittite Northeast, and after what appears to be a few years of relatively light resistance and even some diplomatic letters politely asking him to maybe stop invading Hittite territory, please, King Tidhalia IV of the Hittites finally got an army together and confronted him at the Battle of Nehriah. Though less famous than the Battle of Kadesh, it was only slightly smaller, likely due to the mountainous terrain of the Hittite-Assyrian border, making it harder to bring larger numbers of troops in that direction. Also, it's less well recorded because Tukulti Ninurta ended up writing his great epic about another campaign, and the Hittites weren't much for elaborate epic recordings of their deeds in the same way as the more egotistical kings of the Bronze Age. The main buildup of the battle concerns mostly the fact that the Hittite Empire is by this point solidly in decline. We'll be returning to the Hittites and the adventures of their final century soon enough, but suffice it to say that it may not have been financially affordable for the Hittite kings to field armies of the same size as they had only 50 years previously. Still, the Hittite army was nothing to be scoffed at, and we don't have a very clear picture of what the Assyrian army looks like at this point, but it's clearly the equal of its neighbors. If later developments are anything to go by, the Assyrians almost certainly boasted a more diverse army than their chariot-focused neighbors. Tukulti Ninurta still leads a mighty chariot contingent, but the very terrain around Assyria forced the Assyrian army to rely on a mix of light infantry, spearmen blocks, archers, skirmishers, both javelin and sling armed, alongside the chariots. As with the Battle of Kadesh, the Hittite king opened the battle with an attempt to fool the enemy into complacency. It seems that Tithalia sent a messenger with three separate letters, two asking for war in various different tones, and one requesting peace, hoping to confuse Tukulti Ninurta. There was also an attempt to make it seem like the Hittite army was much further away. 
Tikultina Nerta, in his later writings, claims that he was fooled by neither of these tricks, and calls the Hittites cowards for even attempting them. Having followed Hittite history, we can say confidently that what Tikultina Nerta is interpreting as cowardice is actually pretty standard Hittite tactical trickery, and he probably knows this despite what he's saying in his accounts. Tikultina Nerta gave to this messenger a message of his own, telling the Hittites to leave and abandon Nehriah, and they would be spared. Tidhalia, however, has already allowed the Assyrians to run unchecked in Hittite lands for far too long, and battle was joined. As is sadly typical, we have no details from the battle, except that the Hittites were quickly routed, and a large number of the routing troops were encircled and captured following the battle. Tikulti Ninurta claims to have captured 28,800 troops, which would make the Battle of Nehriah comparable in size to the showdown at Kadesh, if not bigger depending on your particular estimates. Most likely, however, he is including in that figure of captured people, the people captured and deported from the city itself, as the Hittites could likely no longer muster armies of the size that they once could. And while an army of 50,000 moving up and down the flat, rich, and well-populated Levantine coast is conceivable, even an army of half that size would have difficulty in the northern mountains of Hurrian territory, what we now think of as the Taurus and Caucasus Mountains. The defeat at Nehriah was so complete that Tatalia was reportedly concerned that if the Assyrians decided to continue invading, there was nothing to stop them from overrunning the entire Hittite Empire in a single sweep. As it would turn out, though, the Hittites would be spared from this disaster, at least for the moment, as over in Babylon, King Kashdiliash IV has made a grievous error, and Assyria will come to be occupied with its southern neighbor for quite a while. The timeline, as is typical, is a bit muddled, and it isn't completely clear how much of a gap came between the Hittite War and the Babylonian War. A traditional account would have them pretty much one after the other, but more recent excavations at a town called Kar-Tikultina-Nerta suggests that the Assyrian king may have taken a few years to rest on his laurels in between adventures. It seems he may have taken the slaves and loot from his conquests in the mountainous northwest and set them towards the construction of a new city, named naturally after the king himself, Kar Tukulti-Ninurta. Unlike many of these other new capital projects, Kar Tukulti-Ninurta is not a big separation from the traditional capital of Asher, and is in fact right across the Tigris River, about three kilometers north. The name means Tikulti Ninurta's harbor, and it's a fair bit less than one square kilometer in size, pretty much just a new grand temple of Asher and a royal palace, plus living quarters for the countless servants that required for that kind of luxury living. Keeping the god of Asher in the new town made it less of a new city and more of a royal suburb. Though the new city was not as grand as some of the great imperial cities of the other nations, it appears to have occupied an unusual amount of Tikultina Nerta's time, 
Though whether he simply loved the opulence of the place and enjoyed overseeing the construction, or if there was some more significant reason for this, is unclear. Though we typically say that the Babylonian War is the thing which distracted Tukulti Ninurta from further conquests in the West, it may well have been his fascination with his new city that spared the Hittite Empire. Anyway, in perhaps 1225, after perhaps a five-year rest from the Battle of Nehriah, it was time for a new war. Historians are divided as to who started the war. Tukulti Ninurta has something of a reputation as a warmonger, which honestly is perhaps a bit unfair. He only definitely started a single war during his extremely long 37-year reign. He may or may not have started this second war, and as we'll see next episode, he actually makes peace late in his reign when a war almost breaks out. Certainly, he was quite proud of the wars he did win, but two wars in 37 years is actually remarkably peaceful for a successful Bronze Age monarch. Of course, this second war will occupy pretty much his entire reign, but that's beside the point. Really, we'll come to see that the Assyrians, especially the later period Assyrians, have something of an image problem, gleefully celebrating acts which, to modern academics, appear like war crimes. Remember last episode, Shalmaneser blinded like 14,000 people. So, yeah, that's, that's a war crime. Add to that the biblical condemnations, and an entire culture has a reputation like ancient Nazis. And indeed, there are modern commentators who will draw that parallel quite explicitly, no matter how uh, strained it can be at times. One of my goals as we go through the Assyrian Empire is to look very closely at their depictions of violence and try and get a good handle on just how justified this reputation is. The idea of Assyrians as overall villains of history, it's just, it's everywhere. You see it so many places. But of course, an entire empire that lasts for a thousand years, it's not universally evil. But of course, they did do some pretty wretched things. So, yeah, ex expect some discussion of that. In the case of Tukulti Ninurta, however, he appears to be getting a bad reputation from history. His first war saw tens of thousands of people resettled to other parts of the empire in an effort to assimilate them into the mainstream political and cultural paradigm. At worst, you could call this a cultural genocide, but you need to remember that this is a period where actual bloody genocide is considered morally good when applied to one's enemies, and it's economic concerns that are staying the king's hand here. Heck, look at the conquests of the Old Testament, which are not too far removed from where we are now in history, and notice how many times God demands that a people be entirely slaughtered, because for these people, genocide is morally obligatory. Yet the kings and leaders of Israel, like Tukulti Ninurta here, refused to slaughter their enemies wholesale for pragmatic reasons. 
And so, looking at the Babylonian War specifically, the only textual evidence suggests that it was not the Assyrians, but the Babylonians who started it. This evidence, however, is from a work called the Tukultian Inerta Epic, written presumably by Tukultian Inerta or on his orders, a religious account of the war from the Assyrian point of view. Academics are right to be instinctively skeptical of a propagandistic document like this, and also bring up the fact that Asher is, in the year 1225 BCE, very strong, while Babylon is very weak, and thus an attack by the Babylonians would seem to be suicidal. However, neither of these is act absolute proof that the Babylonian king Kashtiliash didn't strike first. He could well have believed that Babylon was much stronger than it actually was, while Asher was weaker. And he wouldn't be the first leader in history to have mistaken the balance of power so extremely. Also, he could have believed that Tukulti Ninurta was readying himself for another Hittite war in the west, leaving his south vulnerable, or perhaps that he was too busy building Kartukulti Ninurta and would be surprised by the attack. Also possible is that Kashtiliash may well have seen the decline in Babylonian fortunes and believed that if he did not attack now, the balance of things would only continue to slip out of Babylon's favor. Whatever the case, I take the Tukultian Inerta epic at more or less face value. In this propaganda piece, Tukultian Inerta says that Asher and Babylon were at peace, a peace protected by a treaty sworn in the sight of Shamash the sun god, a deity of oaths for all of Mesopotamia and beyond. Kashtiliash, looking to strengthen his position while he had the chance, took a number of border regions and fortified them against attack, violating the sacred oath as well as Assyrian territorial integrity. Now, this land was something of a disputed territory, for though the Assyrians held it currently, it had gone back and forth since Ashur-Ubalat over the last century or so, and each now believed it was rightfully theirs. Still, this was not the first time Babylon had gone back on a sacred treaty since those days, and interestingly, it would be the Mesopotamian gods Shamash and Enlil who Tukultin Inerta would war in defense of, not the northern patron god Asher. Tukultin Inerta responded to this encroachment with a letter reminding Kashtiliash of his oaths before the gods and his moral duty for peace and piety. Kashtiliash ignored this letter, and instead the armies of Assyria and Babylon met in a great pitched battle. This great battle went horribly for the Babylonians, and not only were they defeated, but King Kashtiliash himself was captured and taken away in chains to Asher. It isn't clear what resistance the army faced after this battle, but it must have been heavy, for an administrative document discussing the returning soldiers and captives tells us that even the Assyrian soldiers were starving by the time they reached the capital. Oftentimes, we have little more than a single sentence for a war in the Chronicles, and so we assume the war was quick and easy. But at least in this case, the invasion of Babylon was a hard-fought campaign over many months. 
Still, it ended in victory and in the brutal sack of Babylon itself. Many of the chief gods, including the Babylonian patron Marduk, were taken from the city and from the supplementary capitals of Nippur and Dur-Kurigalzu and brought up to the temples of Asher. Actually, the entire removal of the gods thing was apparently done in a very incautious manner, and both Assyrian and Babylonian sources suggest that Tukulti Ninurta committed blasphemy by allowing these temples to be sacked before they were properly desanctified, or however would make it appropriate. The Tukulti Ninurta epic, the official words of the king, states that these gods voluntarily decided to move to Asher and grant their favor to the north. But whether the king intended it or not, it seems his men were quite rough with the holy sanctuaries. Of course, they were rough with the whole city, but that was to be expected after such a hard-fought campaign. Not only were they hard on the temples, they seemed to have roughed up a number of native Assyrians living in Babylon. It was not uncommon for conquerors in campaigns like this to free any of his countrymen living as slaves in the conquered city. And while we have no word on whether this happened or not, what we do see in Assyrian records are native Assyrian refugees showing up in Kartikultinanurta, having suffered badly as a result of the war. This was bad news, because the conquering government typically relied on civilians from their country, merchants and minor nobles and so on, to assist in holding the captured ground. And if these men were fleeing instead of enjoying the spoils of a recent victory, then resistance among the Babylonian population, or perhaps the war crimes of the Assyrian soldiers, may have been unusually fierce. And we can sort of see all of this into Kultin Inerta's military deployments following the invasion. You see, he needs to continue and take more cities even after the three capitals have fallen, but can only spare a single detachment of his army to head west up the Euphrates River. Another small chunk of the army returns up to Asher alongside the wealth. These are the people that are starving by the time they get to the capital because there's nothing to give them because the bulk of the army has to remain in Babylonia to stamp out the rebellion. This is actually really interesting. We've seen garrisons placed in occupied cities before. These were usually relatively small portions of the total army, and in earlier times, they didn't even have standing armies. These garrisons would, you know, they'd hang around for a couple of months, but they'd vanish more or less, and it was the reputation of the king that would hold a city. Here, though, it seems that the resistance in Babylon is so fierce that the Assyrians end up stuck in a counterinsurgency quagmire for an indeterminate amount of time. By the time the king returns to Asher, he is elated by the size of the victory and quantity of plunder he's brought back. 
he can now claim titles above and beyond what any Mesopotamian leader has ever claimed. Not only is he now king of Babylonia, king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four corners of the universe, and all the other traditional titles that go along with the thrones of both Asher and Babylon, but he also claims dominion over lands as distant as Elam and Dilmun, modern-day southern Iran and Qatar, respectively. Almost certainly, his army did not ever actually reach these exotic lands, which means that these were either nominal Babylonian vassals who transferred allegiance without seeing much change, or Tukulti Ninurta was simply claiming as many titles as he could manage to big himself up. Most notable among these titles, though, he invents a new title. King of Kings, likely a reference to the fact that he held the Babylonian king in his dungeon. The title would, however, go on to become something much more significant, a level above mere kingship, and equivalent to what we'll later call emperor. Though I'll admit that the terms emperor and empire are contested, and I've already been calling even some of the larger kingdoms empires even before the invention of the title, which is technically an extension of the Roman term imperator, and so of course an anachronism, but... None of that matters. It's clear, though, that there is substantial discontent among his own people. Starving soldiers, desecrated temples, Assyrian refugees, and disloyal governors are all beginning to take a toll on the stability of Assyria. It isn't clear what Tukulti Ninurta does about all of these issues. Likely he was fully engaged for at least a few years in putting out all of these fires. But increasingly, it appears that he retreats to his new palace district in Kar Tukulti-Ninurta and loses touch with what's around him. Still, we're barely halfway through his reign, so even if he does become something of a hermit, he's a hermit still issuing orders to an empire still mostly willing to act on those orders. It wasn't only internal problems he faced, and not just the matter of Babylonian insurgency. Throughout the kingdom, there are reports of whole districts whose entire harvests are destroyed by Aramean raiders. The year is perhaps sometime around 1220 BCE, and the Bronze Age collapse is now in its early stages, with the barbarians who will sweep across the Near East gaining strength and growing restless. The Arameans, as well as the Sutaeans, and various other Ahlamu and Habiru groups, alongside older foes like the mountain dwellers of the Zagros Mountains, and in Anatolia the Cascans, are now confident enough to regularly invade their civilized neighbors. And with so much of the Assyrian army tied up in Babylonian pacification, the nomads are able to push remarkably far into Assyrian territory and devastate whole provinces. But it wasn't just nomads pushing on Assyrian frontiers. Down in the south, the Elamites, though supposedly subjects of Tukulti Ninurta according to the titles he claimed, took advantage of the weakened Babylon to attack the southern portions of the country, conquering everything that we classically think of as Sumer, all the way up to Nippur and Dur. 
In Nippur, it seems that some relatives of Kashtiliash, named Enlil Nadin Shumi, had only six months previously declared himself king of Babylon and took charge of the continuing rebellion. However, this aspiring king likely never set foot in his notional capital, and was swept up by the Elamite tide, and carried off in chains along with thousands of his people. Almost certainly, the Assyrian-Babylonian War made this Elamite invasion possible, with both sides focused primarily on the main war, and thus highly vulnerable to attack by outside actors. Another Babylonian king, Kadashman Harbe II, is also known from this time, but also only ruled for a single year. Possibly, once the Elamites left Nippur, it was Kadashman Harbe who was elevated to kingship to be a nominal Elamite vassal. Meanwhile, in Babylon, it appears that the Assyrians were getting exhausted by holding on to Babylonia directly, and around the time of the Elamite attack, which they did not respond directly to, abandoned direct control of the region and put another from the royal Kassite house in charge in Babylon, a man named Adad Shuma Idna. For about a year, Adad Shuma Idna ruled in the north, while Kadashman Harbe ruled in the south, both members of the same dynasty, but each owing allegiance to a different master. Somehow, now matters here are highly unclear and likely quite chaotic, it was Kadashman Harbe who was beaten back in fairly short order, and Babylonia was briefly united under the nominal control of the Assyrian faction. There exists a prophecy written sometime either at the end of the Kassite dynasty or at the start of the next one, whose authorship and even century is honestly pretty debatable. However, it seems to me quite likely that this literary work called the Shulgi Prophecy, was written about Adad Shuma Idna. Now, this prophecy is in the voice of King Shulgi, who was highly literate and highly successful in the city of Ur, all the way back around 2050 BCE, some 800 years in the past, and includes such events as the Hittite sack of Babylon and the Assyrian victory over Babylon that we've just seen. The most relevant part is a bit fragmented, but it tells how the king of Babylon will send his possessions out to Assyria. Friend will slay friend, the prophecy predicts. Companion will destroy companion with weapons. The lands will become totally destroyed. The great people will become small. Nippur will be cast down. But then... A certain king will hold his head high because of the great city that the gods established for him on the banks of the Tigris and the Euphrates. By the command of Enlil, the reign of a king of Babylon will come to an end, but another will arise. He will restore Bad Tibira. He will renew Gersu and Lagash, rebuilding the sanctuaries of the gods. He will maintain the offerings of the gods and rebuild Nippur and Isin. The enemies will be cast down.
as Adad Shuma Idna is the one who united Babylon again after the chaos following the Assyrian and Elamite invasions, it's likely that these words were written either to reflect the hopes of a restoration or to convince people that there was hope of such a thing. The fact that they were still Assyrian vassals likely seemed like a small thing, something that could be cast off any day now. But then the Elamites came again, sacking the newly rebuilt Isim and annihilating Marad, then left again with wagons full of plunder. It isn't clear if Adad Shuma Idna died in this war or remained king a bit longer, but the strength and spirit of Babylon was substantially broken by this. This was not, however, the end of the Kassite royal line, nor is it the end of Babylon itself. In the north, Tukulti-Ninurta appears to have pulled quite a lot of strength out of Babylonia to fight the various barbarian threats on his border. While the Babylonians still appear generally discontented with their lot in the new Assyrian Empire, it seems that they accepted a succession of governors ruling over them, at least to a certain extent. Still, rebellion and external threats are rife, and thanks to archaeology from Tukulti Ninurta's newly built capital district, and the fact that it would be abandoned right after he dies, we have a number of letters that allow us to trace out particular incidents that the king had to deal with. In the city of Ashikani, a plague of locusts hits the fields, and harvests for the entire region are wiped out. The people of the city fled to other parts of the empires, and the region was so depopulated that no one was left to guard some 50 Kassite and Hurrian prisoners, who were presumably just left in their cells to die, abandoned and mostly forgotten. Another letter tells of the gathering of an Assyrian army to face a force of 1,500 nomads, likely Arameans, at Hashumu Mountain, most recently, 50 men had been called up to serve as levies, and they had taken their state-provided grain ration, but then just turned around and left without fighting. These sorts of incidents were apparently so endemic that the officer in charge complained that he likely didn't have enough troops at this point to face the enemy on the mountain. A raid in the region of Harbei in northern Syria had wiped out the harvest there, and they would be needing aid to survive the year, even considering the number of animals and humans who had been killed and enslaved by the raiders, who were likely Satans. In the same region, trade was becoming perilous, and multiple caravans were attacked, for it seems the raiders never bothered leaving after taking their goods. But the Assyrians were still able to make moves against these many threats. We have word of 5,000-man joint operations involving both Assyrian and Babylonian soldiers to lay siege to some unknown enemy city. Additionally, Tukulti Ninurta may have sent another punitive expedition to Babylon in response to something Adad Shuma Idin may have done. Though whether this was before, during, or after the more destructive Elamite expedition is unclear. It was either during the second raid or during the initial invasion that the great walls of Babylon were pulled down to render the city defenseless in the case of further rebellion. But the king himself was not part of this campaign. 
Our indications are that in the second half of his reign, he withdrew even further into his palace district. Not out of pure hedonism, since he appears to have been highly involved with his kingdom, uh, but perhaps out of piety. As the chaos begins to reverse the gains from his peak, Tocultin Inerta's listing of his titles gets shorter and shorter, and he de-emphasizes his successes in the world in favor of boasting of his piety and his duty before the gods. Some historians see this as a way to cope with a difficult and non-victorious situation before a court growing increasingly skeptical of him as a king. Though it is possible that he was simply retreating into his palace and his faith because they were just easier than going outside and dealing with the mess left behind by his Babylonian quagmire and the rising tide of external enemies. And that's where we're going to leave things for today. Mesopotamia has devolved into an absolute mess. The nomads are attacking, the Elamites are attacking, the people of Babylon are revolting, and the people of Assyria are sick of their king. Agriculture is beginning to collapse from raids, locusts, climate shifts, and salt. And yet, at this point, Assyria rules over the largest and greatest empire that Mesopotamia has seen since the Akkadian Empire. Tukulti Ninurta is the king of kings and builds massive palaces for the splendor of his gods with the plunder from the temples of other nations. We're on the cusp of the great age of empires. But before we get there, we have the hard years of the Bronze Age collapse to get through. And in Tukultin Inerta, we can see both the good and the bad of what is to come. And so, join us next time as we kill off the last of the Kassites and wind down the tale of the Middle Assyrians as all of this madness pays off. Thank you for listening.